1: Joe and I are honored to be joined today by award-winning author and chief White House correspondent for The New York Times, Peter Baker. Peter has covered four presidents as a reporter, Presidents Trump and Obama for The New York Times, and George W. Bush and Bill Clinton for The Washington Post. He is also the author of five books, including Obama, The Call of History, Days of Fire, Bush and Cheney in the White House, and Inside the Impeachment and trial of William Jefferson Clinton. Peter Baker, welcome to Words Matter. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Joe. Since you and Peter have a history together <laughs> with the White House press room, we'll let you bat no, lead off today. No, this
0: is I bad. have waited so long to turn the tables <laughs> on Mr. Baker good. here. This is this is going to be no, hard. No, this is bad. But I want to talk about your book. You wrote, if not the, but one of the most definitive books on the Obama presidency. In the upside down world of Donald Trump, you had to go back at it and kind of write a new (laughs) version of it based on what happened after, you know, kind of in the last year. I'm most interested in both contemporaneously and then looking back how they handled Russia and how Mm -hmm. they handled the election and I think interference and meddling, if you talk about words mattering. If we'd called it something more sinister yeah. at the beginning, I think this this might have turned out differently. But let's call it interference.
2: Right. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. Look, yeah, that's the thing about presidents, right? The, they look different a year after they leave office and two years and five years and ten years. And we're constantly reevaluating them. President Clinton, you're president – Looked different in 2001, he looked different in 2008, 2016. Every time, you know, they were still in the political arena, but we were reevaluating his presidency and his place in history. And that's certainly true, I think, for President Obama. It's hard not to look at President Obama through the prism of President Trump. They probably both hate that, but they are linked together in some ways, I think, in history because they're so opposite. They're so much the it's like the old Star Trek episode where you had the, the two aliens who are the exact opposites of each other or whatever. And President Trump has made so much of his tenure about undoing the Obama presidency that you can't evaluate that administration without seeing what follows. So I think that that was one reason to go back and do the book again. The first version was a picture book, coffee table book, so the text – Let's face it, nobody reads the text of a picture book. That's not the point. That's not why you buy it. So we took the text and then blew it out and doubled it almost in in size and made it like a regular book for a new audience.
1: I wanted to ask about the how the 2016 election impacted President Obama's relationship with Secretary Clinton, because in the book and you, you talk about the election night and how Obama handled it and some of the conversations he had with Secretary Clinton in the wake of the election and, and um, on that evening. And, and you say that Obama blamed Clinton, who, quote, brought many of her troubles on herself and ran a, quote, scripted. Soulless campaign. Yeah. So, can you talk a bit about how the election impacted the relationship between President Obama and Secretary Clinton?
2: I think that President Obama and his people were understandably, perhaps, a little defensive about what happened in the election. Was this their fault in some way? both because of the Russia thing. Did they do enough on Russia? And then largely, you know, if your presidency is successful, why would it lead to somebody like Donald Trump? If you were Barack Obama, it's a natural question to ask. And I think that they looked at it and said, well, wait a second. You guys are putting the finger at us, but how about the candidate? She's the one who was out there and, and, and lost it. We weren't on the ballot. And, you know, it was kind of a, a corporate campaign that, that Hillary Clinton ran in some ways. They, they poll tested or focus tested, I think, some like 85 slogans before right. coming up with, you know, Stronger, Stronger Together. Yeah. And I think that it's not surprising to see a president who's frustrated by the outcome of of election expressing that about the candidate. I think, again, Bill Clinton and Al Gore had this out in the final days of of their presidency after Gore lost and and Clinton thought he squandered what was a pretty good record. So I don't know that it's personal. I don't think that there's any animosity there. But I think that there is a certain defensiveness on the part of, of the people who were leaving the White House about why it was that their party lost.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting that you bring up Clinton and Gore because I think that there's two different dynamics but with the same result. I mean I think Bill Clinton thinks that Al Gore ran away from him mm. and his record and that hurt him. It's one of these things where in both of these cases, you can argue because it was so close. You can put any one variable exactly. and say – Boy, if Bill if Clinton only. had been in Florida that last weekend, yeah. he, he certainly would have gotten 700 more votes. Right. Or, um, <laughs> but with Hillary Clinton, I think she was running in some ways as I'm the third term. Yeah. I mean, there were differences. She you know, distanced herself from TPP, which right. was a political decision. I, I don't think that helped her much, but maybe inoculated her on some of the trade stuff. But – How much do you think Obama still ruminates on this, on Hillary's failure? I know that a lot of his staff, everything you wrote rang true from what I've heard from the staff. I have obviously not talked to President Obama about it.
2: It didn't Uh, come up at the closing?
0: It did not come up at the closing. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for that. We'll do a special show on that next week. You know, chose real estate. Here's the latest. Sorry. uh, Can't help uh, (laughs) it. I'm going to start asking you much harder questions, Peter, <laughs> if, if this keeps up. But do you think this is something that you know, sort of pissed him off for a week and then yeah. he moved on? Or is he caught in the uh, – which I think Clinton was for – President Clinton yeah. for, for a while. The real you know kind of what I'd call political depression of look what they've done to mm-hmm. what I built.
2: Yeah, it's a great question and a hard, answer, hard one to answer because unlike President Clinton, I don't think President Obama – shares a lot of his internal life with – even with people who were close to him and his staff. There are moments, which I thought was interesting, that we learned about in the days after the election when he talked with Ben Rhodes and others. And he tried to sort of put this in history, right? Well, how does this happen in effect? And he seemed to go through, as they describe anyway, kind of the multiple stages of grief, right? Anger and denial and – I don't know if we got to acceptance or not. Sometimes I think I I came along 20 years too early, he said at one point. Did we push too hard? I don't hear him from his aides description anyway, wonder whether he did anything wrong. And presidents often don't. I'm not sure he sits there and regrets doing health care or regrets, you know, his policy on Syria or the Iran deal or something like that. I think it's natural for him. He's a smart guy. He's a thoughtful guy to try to understand why it is that America would pick not once but twice, the first African-American president, a obviously a progressive leader, and then turned so radically to the other side, Some, not, not just somebody who's different ideologically. That's kind of normal after eight years. But somebody who literally denied President Obama's right to have the job through the whole birther Conspiracy theory that that Trump was out there promoting, and so I think I think it troubles him. I think and I think I think it troubles him because it's hard not to look at that and say I did all this. I worked so hard. We we made so much progress, and to watch it sort of unravel has to be painful. But in public, anyway, and even I think in private with his aides, he tries to take a zen. Approach. This too shall pass. History zigs and then zags. We're in a zag right now, but we'll zig back. But I'm looking forward to his book, which
0: we're still waiting for, right, Katie? Because you coughed. I'm taking the next question. If you cough again, you have to leave.
1: <laughs> so many rules. Yeah,
0: so uh, many. There's new. There's yeah. there's new rules here. I, I like timely humor. You know, it doesn't have to be funny, but it's timely. <laughs> On Obama, the thing that really intrigues me, and I wish, you know, there were certain. You know this. Better, or at least as well as I do, that there were days that I wish Bill Clinton didn't share yeah. <laughs> that much of his his inner thoughts uh, <laughs> to people around him who then would share them with you. But the the whole birther thing is the, the thing that intrigues me because it really does go to the legitimacy yeah. of Obama as a leader and as a historical figure exactly. in both the United States and the world. I'd love to figure out how far into your head he got you know, through him and the mm-hmm. people around him on that particular issue. I think he
2: got in. I think Trump got into his head. I do. And he was very careful about not trying to characterize, at least publicly, the opposition to him as race-based. Not that he denied it, but he just didn't want that to be the defining characterization of his presence. He didn't want to be the first black president. He wanted to be the first president who happened to be black, right? He didn't want to be president of black America. He wanted to be president of all America. It diminishes him if he's defined entirely by race. And therefore, I think he thought it diminished him as well if he complained about the opposition to him being based on race, although obviously part of it was. But in private, and, and again, uh, we get this through through Ben Rhodes, who I thought provided a, a window in which we had not seen before. We had a conversation with President Obama at one point and said, what, why do you think people are so strongly opposed to you? And he says, because I think my election drove some white people crazy. And he never said that in public. It was interesting to hear him say that in private, that he, in fact, does, of course, not surprisingly, see some of the opposition, particularly President Trump, as based on race. And the birth of thing clearly got in his mind. One day, he's back at home in Chicago during his presidency. He's rummaging through the boxes in the attic or whatever, and he finds this sort of hospital, here's your baby born kind of like handout certificate that they give to a new mom from Hawaii when, his, when he was born. And he brought it back to the White House when he gets back to Washington. He says, see what I got here, guys. Guys, look what I found. And of course, it didn't prove anything really. It's not a legal document. But it led him to say, let's get the actual long form birth certificate and go ahead and put it out there. And Joe probably would have, like most political pros, would have said, let's not dignify that in the briefing room of the White House by looking like we're really. But he couldn't help it. He was so upset and so bothered by this. And it, and it did actually finally, I think, turn a corner for him in some ways and probably may have been the right thing to do. But it did, I think, tell you that it got under his skin.
1: All right, so switching gears here now that I have my microphone back. <laughs> In preparing for this interview, I was talking to a friend of mine who called you an iconic journalistic polymath. I just want to tap into what, what that. Is, what is that word I don't mean? even based know. On, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Based on your breadth of experience, really. Must and I want bad. to tap into that well. Because in between covering Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush, you served as the Moscow bureau chief for The Washington Post, and you wrote a book titled Kremlin Rising, Vladimir Putin's Russia and the End of Revolution. So I have a two-part question based on your experience during that time. Do you think that Putin is pleased with the attention he's gotten with Russia's role in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, and will that attention cause him— and by extension, Russia, to go full bore in 2020.
2: Yeah. I think that Putin had two goals. One was to sow dissension. One was to to just screw with us, to make us unhappy with each other, to to get us at each other's throats. Anything that causes us to, to, to doubt our own place in the world is good for him. He's a very zero-sum guy. This is where President Obama, I think, didn't understand right. Like President Obama would say, wow, this is not a zero-sum world. It is to Vladimir Putin. It really is. If we're up, that means he's down. Therefore, we have to be down for him to be up. So I think goal number one was screw around with us. And in that, he was successful. We are at each other's throats. We are still debating today how much of a role he played and what what should we do if somebody comes bringing incriminating information to you. He has succeeded in getting into our head. If the second goal was, though, to reduce... The pressure on him in terms of sanctions and so forth, if he wanted Donald Trump in there because he thought Trump would lift the pressure on him internationally, that's not been successful. Trump clearly does not want to engage in a war of words with Vladimir Putin. He's friendlier to Putin than anybody would expect an American president to be on a personal level. But the country as a whole, the the policies that have been enacted have not let Russia up off the mat uh, in the way I think that Putin would have hoped for. And that's partly because Congress wouldn't let him. Even his own Republicans voted unanimously in 2017 to impose new sanctions on Russia rather than allow him to take sanctions off. So the political system here won't allow President Trump to go Easier if he wasn inclined to do it, he says he was not. he says he 's very tough on russia, but you wouldn 't see it in his rhetoric. But you do see I think in some ways in the policy
1: what do we both as Americans and as journalists get wrong about Vladimir Putin? That's a
2: great question. You know, a lot of my Russian friends would say that we overestimate him, that we make him out to be this ten foot man who's really uh, quite powerful, and that he's not. And that's a fair point. This is not your father's Soviet Union. Russia is still a fraction of itself compared to where it was in the old days. It is not a threat to us in an economic sense. It's not a threat to us in a ideological struggle around the world kind of way that it once was. We're not having proxy wars in Angola and 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 so forth, but. He is not a communist. He is a Soviet at heart. He misses the, the, the Džavnos is the Russian word for it, the greatness of Russia. And he is prickly and proud. And when we seem to deny his greatness or the country's greatness, that's what bothers him. And I think that we had this small moment after 9-11 where there's a – Possibility of a different kind of alignment, but then I think the real Putin kind of came back, and, and we can talk about whether Bush should have done this or that. But Putin was always, I think, going to be the person he is today. And if we we overestimated, I think, early on, hoped he was going to be something different.
0: Yeah, I think we I think we overestimated our ability to impact yeah, him. And I, I think, think you're right. right on the Soviet part. It's a great way to describe it because as Trump wants to be the antithesis of Obama. Putin wanted to be the antithesis of Yeltsin. Exactly. I mean, in every way. Right. He saw Yeltsin as a drunk. Yeah. And as someone who was erratic and its root not strong. It you know it feels like Trump upends every part of your life we talked about you had to go back and rewrite your book Uh, you also had to move because uh, uh, when trump was elected you were you were already in jerusalem isn't that right yeah talk talk about that
2: yeah well (laughs) yeah in 2016 the summer of 2016 my family uh, and i moved to jerusalem to be the jerusalem bureau chief for the new york times we had been in Washington for a long time, and I grew up here. It's, it's still my home. It'll always be my home. But we thought we'd take another overseas venture, and we thought that the next few years would be probably pretty calm in Washington. <laughs> election night, in fact, my wife was the editor of Politico at the time, Susan Glasser, and she was still in Washington finishing out the election before moving. And on election night, she texted me as, as Trump won Florida and Wisconsin and Michigan. And she says, "You know, they're going to ask you to come back. <laughs> Kind <laughs> of like reading this text in Jerusalem, like what are you talking about? But she was right, and she saw faster than I did that the paper would basically need all hands on deck. You know that this Trump presidency is going to be a story unlike anything we've seen in um, modern times, and we we then ended up turning around and packing our bags again and coming back after just five months overseas.
0: Let's talk about the you know story unlike anything we've seen. I was struck by talking to a couple of your colleagues uh, very early on. I was texting back and forth with Maggie Haberman. Mm. And she was looking for some detail, I think, about one of the Clintons. And I said to her at the end of it, "Just you must be having the time of your life, you know. You've got access. It's a huge story." And she wrote back, like in you know all caps too, "No." And then I think a couple of weeks ago, somewhere on Twitter, and I think it was Katie Rogers, you probably saw it. She did a chart of like her emotional reactions. It was basically it was a chart that had two points, one high, one low, which is one like on one day. This is the best job I've ever had. This is the best time to be a journalist. And the next day, like, this is the worst experience (laughs) of my life. I can't (laughs) believe I have to do this. And my life has been taken over. So you've seen more than most there. What's it been like? Yeah,
2: I hadn't seen that. That's, uh, but I think that's right in a lot of ways. Look, you know, we know, because we've been through as you and I, together, that it can be stressful covering a White House and being a White House press secretary, that there are moments when we are at odds with each other. We are going to yell at each other sometimes. We are not meant to be friends, but we kind of have a professional relationship. And so we're in this odd position where it is obviously an extraordinary story, and it is so important, and it's so unpredictable. What reporters like, people say reporters are biased. Okay, we can have that conversation. But reporters are biased toward conflict and biased toward things that are not predictable, things that are surprising. Well, that's what you're going to get out of this White House, conflict and unpredictability. So from a reporter's point of view, this is – Extraordinary. And in fact, the Twitter feed everybody else complains about, I've got no problem with it as a journalist because it gives me an insight into what this president is thinking almost every hour of the day, maybe to a fault. I get why people would say, especially his advisors would say maybe he not, ought not to be. But I actually personally like to know what he's thinking in a way that President Clinton and President Bush and President Obama would never do, especially President Obama. But it is stressful. Obviously, it's there's a real – the natural tension is different. It's, it's different between you guys suck and you're covering us wrong and I don't like what you're writing and you're the enemy of the people. And this whole fake news, failing New York Times, name-calling stuff. Just this week, the president accused the New York Times of treason for reporting state secrets that then he said are not actually true. So I'm not sure how he could be both – treasonous and false at the no, same you're time. No, you want to be
0: tra- traitors. We're going to be traitors. Yeah,
2: we're, we're working on it. Yeah. And it's, again, I have no problem with any president wanting to tell us that we're not doing our job right. That's their right. I was in the Oval Office with our publisher, A.G. Sulzberger, who told the president to his face in a polite but firm way that the language was was corrosive to a free society and damaging, not just here in the United States, but overseas, especially where the model we have, try to set in the post-war period is being eroded because these foreign autocrats now say for fake news, enemy of the people, and when they do it, they really are you know, putting people in jail and, and closing down newspapers and, and, and in some cases even using violence.
1: I want to talk about Twitter and about Maggie. The the president often rails against the times on Twitter, and he usually targets his ire toward Maggie Haberman, even though the two of you often share a byline. And we did a little bit of research, and it doesn't seem like the president has mentioned you in particular. I think it was October 2017 he targeted you and a story you wrote, but not you in particular, just the story, as opposed to how he treats Maggie. Why do you think that is?
2: He did complain to my publisher in that one meeting about me specifically, so I'm not entirely off the hook. But Maggie is is somebody who is on his radar screen. She's known him longer. She's known him through his years in New York. She worked for the New York tabloids when he was a developer and television star and all that. And I think he just he just really fixates on her in, in a way. And, and people – she gets so much grief from all sides and it's almost all entirely unfair. She's a fabulous reporter, really the – the best reporter we have right now on the White House by far. And it's because she knows him, because she is in his head, that he bristles so much. Presidents don't like, right? Presidents don't like reporters living rent-free in their head and then purporting anyway to describe them to the general public. And she does. And so he he might call her from time to time, but not nearly as often as people think and then he'll trash her. He did this with George Stephanopoulos the other day in the interview, Maggie, this and everything. He has not forgotten that she kind of laughed when he first announced his presidency, but she wasn't the only one. But he has a thing for her that is just – it's a New York thing too. She is a New Yorker through and through and, and I think he, he seeks her approval, which he's not going to get. That's not what reporters do. But he can't let – he can't stop.
0: I think most of our listeners know Peter, you know, through his byline, obviously, but from appearances on MSNBC. And, Peter, you come across as very polite and very thoughtful. I, I just wanted to spell the notion that you're not <laughs> tough. But it's funny. We were talking before him, before you he got here, and there's a lot of reporters who scream and yell, and I've been known to scream and yell back. But I, I, I distinctly have this in my your voice in my head when I'd be saying something, and Peter's comeback would be – Come on, Joe. Come on. As in, I do not believe a single word you're saying. Why don't you why don't we start over and try again? You're if not the best one of the best, but also one of the most tenacious with, which kind of belies your, you know, you know, your relaxed sober attitude that you we see on MSNBC. I want to switch gears a little bit because when people are looking at impeachment a lot of them naturally go back to 1998, and there are really kind of two books that I think are must-reads. One is Jeffrey Tubin's Just on the Investigation, and then I think yours, the, the Breach, on the political process. Again, the stuff that really resonated with me was once Congress took over. Right. As opposed to, you know, the, the star, the, the star investigation. Of it, right? yeah. How do you see this playing out? Give us your sense of how Congress would – how you think they would handle it based on the in-depth reporting you did the last time. Different players, but in some ways the same dynamic.
2: Some of the same players too. It's interesting, right? There's Lindsey Graham, who was one of the prosecutors they called managers of the trial in 1998, 1999. And he uh, is obviously the president's tough ally right now. And Jerry Nadler, who's the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, was there 20 years ago. Chuck Schumer was the only one to vote On both impeachment in the House and the trial in the Senate because he got elected in between. That's right. Moving up from one to the other. So there are some of these same people. The other day I did an interview for our own podcast of Zoe Lofgren who was on the committee at the time and is now second-ranking Democrat on the committee. Also was there in 1974 during the Nixon impeachment as a staffer. So she's now seen in effect all three of these. I mean every impeachment is different. You know, it's always hazardous to try to compare them. And so I, I – and when I do, I tend to get in trouble because people say, yes, but, right? You know, and there are obviously going to be huge differences. People are trying to learn lessons from 98, 98 99, which is the, – the, the Pelosi lesson seems to be if you're not going to get bipartisan vote, it's going to be damaging to the party that pursues impeachment. That's the lesson of Newt Gingrich's Republicans from, from 1998. They didn't succeed by their impeachment effort. Then you get the, the flip argument, Philippe Rines, who who is Hillary Clinton's spokesman, argues, well, wait a second. They probably didn't do so badly. They still held on to the House and they were the presidency in 2000. So maybe we shouldn't look at this as a political loser. But then the other part, of course, is is the principal aspect of it, right? is the principal L-E, not A-L, is what lines you try to draw. When does the House representatives in, in the Senate have an obligation to try to overturn a democratic election, what is a president able to do? In the 98-98 in case, it was a president who was accused of perjury and obstruction of justice, later admitted he made false statements under oath. We can agree on that, I think, Joe, at this point. The question no then was, the question was whether it, mat- it rose to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors. You know? well, which,
0: by the way, was the basic argument. Yeah. That that we made a little bit and that the House and Senate Democrats were making the whole time.
2: There was also some squirming around as to word parsing and this and that and all that. It was in a lawsuit, a president just like everybody else owes it, owes the truth under oath. But it wasn't about his use of the presidency. It was not the exercise of power. The flip side is here, the obstruction of justice argument about Trump anyway is the use of his power. It is literally his exercise of presidential authority. But the flip argument that they're making is that is immune from congressional scrutiny because of Article II, that you cannot question a president in exercise of of the executive branch. He can fire anybody he wants. He can stop any investigation he wants. It's a rather extraordinary interpretation and yet, where is that line? When when is the president's use of the power that he's entitled to use no longer his discretion to do, and when does it cross into sort of a corruption kind of situation?
1: I want to ask what it's like to cover a president who is known to be a serial liar, from from your perspective, how you cover that. And and to set it out, I want to quote one of your recent pieces. You say, quote, For any president, accusing another country of an act of war presents an enormous challenge to overcome skepticism at home and abroad. But for a president known for falsehoods and crisis-churning bombast— the test of credibility appears far more daunting. So the language that you use, falsehoods and bombast, is not, you know, directly saying he's known to be a liar, a serial liar. Is there a discussion in the newsroom about what language to use, whether or not to call him a liar, and and aren't those words just euphemisms? Yeah, it's a
2: great question, and it's one we do struggle with. And again, we, we experienced this in 1998 in a much smaller way, right? It was about one specific lie or falsehood or untruth uh, as opposed to like 10,000, which is what the Washington Post has counted in terms of misleading and false statements by this president over two and a half years. We had this debate in 1998. We're having it today. We tend to avoid the L word for a couple of reasons. Our Dean Becke, our executive editor, is the one who's in charge. We can't use it without his permission. He's personally weighing in on it because it is important for a couple of reasons. One, Lie as opposed to falsehood implies we know intent, implies we know knowledge in his head, implies we know that he knows what he is saying is untrue. Now, could he have said 10,000 things that are not true and not known any of them were untrue? Probably not. But on any given one, do you know for a fact that he knows what he's saying is wrong? It's a higher standard than simply saying falsely. I know what you're about. To, it's a higher standard, I think. So we're we're naturally leery of getting into a head and pretending we can read minds. Secondly, you can lose power if you use a word that is seen as almost a nyan-nyan name calling, right? If we say in a headline, President lies again today, we look more and more like the opposition rather than journalists. And that's not what we— should do, we should be sober. We should be factual and let people out there, the, the political class decide, liar, liar, whatever. That's not for us to do. So we lose impact, I think, if we were suddenly to use this word all the time. And then the last thing I would say is, we have used it on a few occasions, and, I, and the, where I generally tend to use it is in the generic sense, like he has been known to lie rather than trying to pin any specific thing and try to litigate any one particular sentence that he might say. Because I don't think anybody would argue that he's not, in fact, been lying at some point. In fact, the article you cite, the very next paragraph quotes his own former communications director as saying, quote, he's a liar, unquote. This is Anthony Scaramucci, who is still supportive of the president, not having broken with him. Even as, yeah, he's a liar, but, right? That's what comes from Trump's people. He may be a liar. He may not tell the truth all the time, but he has a larger truth that he's telling, he's speaking truth to power in the sense of he's standing up to the elites, da-da-da-da. Anyway, it is a complicated thing. We don't want to fall into the trap that I think he has set for us, which is to make us the resistance, to make us the opposition. That's not what we are. We shouldn't be that. You shouldn't want us to be that. Our job is to be independent. Our job is to be journalistic. And then the resistance can do whatever it wants.
0: So what did you think I was going to object with
2: He looked like he was you thought that I was giving him too much credit for for
0: no I actually I actually have a much a different reaction because I think this whole thing begs a much more difficult question which is let's assume for a second that he he we know his intent and he doesn't think he's lying yeah then I think you're getting into the area of mental illness if you watched I mean I I think George Stephanopoulos did a, a good job in the interview in picking his spots of saying Mr. President that's just not true. He could have said that every other sentence and then it would have gone off track and he wouldn't have gotten anything. So I have some I have some sympathy and I think the people who are on him on Twitter for letting him get away with things just don't understand how things work. Yeah. But I think it does raise, you know, assuming that he doesn't know he's lying, then he's delusional. Yeah. And if he's delusional, what does that say about a a, a president with the nuclear codes? who can't tell fact from fiction, as we prepare to escalate in Iran, as we negotiate with North Korea, as we do, you know, arms deals with Saudi Arabia. And that strikes me as a journalist must be a much more difficult issue than is he a liar or is he someone who commits falsehoods? The New York Times has run the two opposition uh, op-eds, Philippe's for impeachment and mine against impeachment. And one of the things that I've always thought is, why are we talking about impeachment Why aren't we talking about the 25th Amendment? I mean, why do we absolve his cabinet and Republicans of any responsibility here when they know from sitting in the room with them? That he's not well. Yeah. I mean, is there a way for responsible journalists to go the other way that Katie's suggesting that maybe he's not lying? Yeah. And maybe his intent is not to deceive, but he deceives himself. Yeah. <laughs> well, Answer that one now, Peter. Yeah,
2: it's a, it's you know, you're right. I mean, I'm not a doctor, and I shouldn't play one on TV. <laughs> yeah. And we have covered this in its own way. Obviously, remember that the reason he calls him a very stable genius is because we were writing stories about this following the Michael Wolff book. We have written about the psychiatrists and the profession and the argument within their own profession as to how much they are, should be or shouldn't be diagnosing from afar In effect, Bandy Lee up at Yale University, who's, I think, leading the charge on this. So we've sort of covered this, but absent somebody on the inside coming out and saying stuff that we haven't heard yet, I don't know where the story – how as a journalist, you're supposed to address that beyond the way we have already – there are people on the inside who who say that those who doubt his mental capacity are wrong. That's just a complaint but people don't like him to try to explain him. And again, I can't make that judgment. I think what we, the best thing we can do is cover what he does and cover what he says and try to, to to connect that to the consequences of of his actions and his words and 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 then allow people to come to their own judgment. And there's no shortage of people who have come to their own judgment. I think because they gotten it through the journalists, I hope, at least uh, because they have been informed by our our reporting as best we can do it. It's a tough one. And you got to be fair. And you don't want to, you know, it's not about making diagnoses that we're not qualified to make. At the same time, I think that it's our job as journalists to point out what we see in front of us and what we can learn about what we don't see in front of us and that's going on behind the scenes.
0: Let me ask you to make one last quick judgment. And you've been through four White Houses. Yeah. Has the daily briefing outlived its usefulness? And what's your assessment now looking back on two years of Sarah Sanders?
2: Well, you and Mike McCurry were my first. So I, I learned about what the White House briefing is supposed to be like because Mike McCurry and Joe Lockhart were the press secretaries in the Clinton days when I did it. And I then had multiple press secretaries since then, including Dana Perino, Tony Snow. The briefing had over time grown less and less useful. I don't know to these old people who said, oh my gosh, back in the day. I do feel like back in the day when you were press secretary and Mike was press secretary, we got information from it that was important. It wasn't just the spin. Obviously, spin's part of it. That's okay. And that asking questions provided, not every day, not on every subject, but useful information. And that, that that's grown less and less over time. It's not, owed, it doesn't owe to any individual president. I wouldn't blame any single press secretary. That's just the nat- nature of the beast. But I've always thought that no matter how frustrating a briefing might be, no matter how useful or unuseful it might be, it's still important. It's important because it's the one opportunity, day in, day out, where a representative of the most powerful person on the planet, who is governing on our behalf, with our money, and with the power that we as a people give them, has to answer questions on the record, on camera. And if they choose not to answer, fine. That lack of answer, the choosing not to answer is also important. That's for the record. And if you don't have a daily briefing, which we no longer have then that accountability kind of goes away. Now, I am happy that President Trump, in effect, has taken over the role of press secretary by talking to us so much. I'm very happy that he has restored the the pool spray as an institution. That's something where reporters go in, a small number of them go in every day or two and get to throw out questions to the president. President Obama didn't like that, basically done away with it. He did about one-fifth of men, as many pool sprays as your president, President Clinton, did, about a third as many as President Bush did. And I thought that was terrible because that's the meat and potatoes of a White House reporter's job is to get a president on the record on just a whole lot of stuff going on. They may not choose to answer, but at least you have an opportunity. And, and Obama basically stopped that. So Trump has done it in spades. It's not a substitution, though, for the daily briefing because you can't ask a question that a, has a predicate. You cannot ask an involved question when you're one of 20 reporters all shouting and he's kind of picking whichever one he happens to hear or wants to answer, right? Those are questions that like, you know, Mr. President, what about Iran? That's the way you can ask a question. You can't say, Mr. President, on this date, you did this. On that date, so-and-so happened. How ca-? You can't ask that kind of compound and they, question. And they know that. And they know yeah. that. So it's on his terms. It, with the press secretary, if they call on you, you can ask a question in a reasoned, thoughtful, And, you know, sophisticated way, you may not get the answer you want, but at least you can ask the question. And that's what I think we're missing now. It's a shame. And I hope that they think about restoring it.
1: So we're also joined today by our executive producer, Adam Levine, who wanted to ask you a question about a book he wrote about the White House he served.
2: Yes.
3: Uh, Pierre Frizaral, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, In the interest of full disclosure, I was one of the roughly 275 people you spoke to (laughs) uh, in over nearly 400 interviews you did for Days of Fire, Bush and Cheney in the White House. The book, I believe, in spite, not because of my participation, is the most nuanced and detailed account of that relationship, which is far more nuanced and detailed than I think is given credit for in popular culture. And and one of the things I wanted to ask you was, you begin the book with President Bush's decision not to pardon Scooter Libby, Louis Libby, for his role in the CIA leak. And in April of 2018, President Trump... Granted that pardon. Mm-hmm. And as reporters are fond of doing, I'll ask you a two-part question, which is, <laughs> first, how important was the decision not to pardon Libby? Part of George W. Bush's legacy, yeah. one of the moments I am proud to have worked for him. And what does it say about Donald Trump that he decided to grant that
2: pardon? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I started a book with that because I did think it kind of— it was the end of their presidency and it was this moment not unlike the Clinton-Gore kind of split in a way at the end of the presidency where these two people who have been partners for a long time go their different ways and that and the, the accumulation of grievance you know, comes out in this one moment. And it was over whether or not Libby, who had been Cheney's chief of staff and had been convicted of perjury in the CIA leak case, should be pardoned. And Cheney believed very strongly he had been badly treated, that Libby was a fall guy for a prosecutor who was really aiming for him, the vice president, that there was no underlying crime. Remember, we've heard that lately, right? That that in fact, there was no illegal leak of the CIA uh, officer's identity and therefore perjury about that shouldn't have been held against Scooter Libby. He wasn't even the first one to leak it. It was really Rich Armitage. Well, President Bush disagreed. President Bush didn't want to substitute his judgment for a jury. He did commute the sentence. He thought that two and a half years in prison was too much. He commuted the sentence. He refused to pardon him. He said, this is too far. The jury made a judgment. I have to respect that. And it was a a big moment, I think, between these two people who had this extraordinary eight years together. And I think it's, it's soured their relationship even today. They don't really speak very much. Cheney said something very cutting to Bush. He says, you're leaving a good man on the on the field of battle in effect, a wounded man on the field of battle. And that got to the heart of Bush's self-identity as a loyal person, somebody who's loyal to his people. But he just he decided that it was not in his view right. He thought the pardon process shouldn't be about who has most access to a president. He thought the pardon process had been abused over time and he didn't want to be that kind of president. And President Trump, on the other hand, his pardon process has been about people who got close to somebody near him who pleaded a case to him. And in this case, I think he was convinced that Libby had been badly treated. And and he, I think, is more sympathetic to the idea of a political person who's been badly treated, in his view, by a witch hunt prosecutor. He saw himself. It was a little identification there in Libby's case and saw what he thought was something a little like his own. And I think that's influenced his decision to to, to pardon him had some advocates like Joe DiGenova, v- Vicky Tenzing, who at one point agreed to represent the president, who were advocating on, on Scooter Libby's behalf. Well,
3: as somebody who testified a couple of times uh, in the grand jury against Scooter, I took comfort in the fact that it him accepting that pardon as an admission of guilt.
2: Yeah. So. <laughs> well, you know, in fact, it's funny because there is a Supreme Court ruling early in the 20th century that says the acceptance of a pardon is in effect an admission of guilt. Gerald Ford had a copy of that. He put it in his wallet and he carried it around for the rest of his life after the Nixon pardon. And when he was attacked for a pardon, Nixon, he would pull it out and say, see, I'm the one in effect who got Nixon to admit guilt.
1: Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, That's a good story. <laughs> well, I think the the pardon story will still see chapters four, five, and six in the in the coming months. So, We'll see what happens. But Peter Baker, it has been a pleasure. Thank Thank you you for
2: joining us. really appreciate it. You guys are great. Thanks, Peter. Thanks.
1: All right, Joe, for this week, What's On Your Mind? We are still joined by our executive producer, Adam Levine. And to kick off, I want to start with the kickoff rally for President Trump's announcement for the 2020 campaign. We saw there were a ton of people in attendance. There were lines around the building. What do you make of his decision to make the announcement now?
0: I think it's really interesting. So let me go back to my past. You know, President Clinton, when I started as his press secretary for his campaign in 96, that was my entry. And we'd meet for a political meeting once a week. And I'd say about once a month, it would come up, when should we announce you're running for reelection? And the president's answer was always pretty much the same, which was, why should we announce we're running? Things are going well. We're getting stuff done. And if I announce as a candidate, I look like the other candidate. So why don't we just let what we're doing speak for itself? And I think that was the right strategy for President Clinton, who, by the way, loved campaigning as much as Donald Trump. Don't get me wrong there. Loved giving political speeches, loved working the crowd. With Trump, I think the opposite's true. I I think he's kind of had a really lousy run at governing. But what he's good at is campaigning. And he's never really stopped. I mean, he's been doing these MAGA rallies, I want to say, once every month or two since he's been president which is unusual to early in your presidency go out and give straight up political rallies that your campaign pays for so i think he wants to make the campaign as long as he can because that's what he feels is his strength and that's probably true i mean everything's relative but he's not strong at on the governing and policy part so it's you know it's contrary to conventional wisdom where incumbents want to shorten campaigns trump wants to make it as long as possible
3: And, Joe, one of the things we saw at that rally on Tuesday night, that campaign kickoff announcement, was that the message seemed to be a reboot from 2016.
0: Yeah, I think if you closed your eyes and didn't see that the president has gotten a little older and larger, you would have thought it was 2016. Uh, It's the same red meat. It's the same ugly, divisive rhetoric. It's the same bigotry that we saw in 2016. There's a couple problems with uh, just replaying your greatest hits. One is he's now got a record of two and a half years, three years um, as we get into next year, uh, and a lot of those promises he made he hasn't kept. You know, some of his supporters are now talking about, well, yes, he's building a virtual a virtual wall, a stealth wall, a secret wall, but and Mexico's going to secretly pay
3: for it with secret pesos. Also last week, Joe. Hope Hicks testified in a closed-door session of the House Judiciary Committee. She was accompanied by two of her lawyers, two White House lawyers, and two DOJ Office of Legal Counsel lawyers. Chairman Adler and the Democratic leadership got a lot of grief for not forcing that session to be on camera. What did you make of it, Joe?
0: Well, uh, I'm in the minority here, but I think Char- Chairman Adler did exactly the right thing. We've talked about this before, so um, people listening um, – uh, will know that I said in advance of this hearing that this is exactly what Nadler wanted. And here's what I mean by that. To compel testimony and to get the documents they need, they they can't uh, use their inherent contempt uh, authority. Going down and arresting Don McGahn on the street and holding him in the Capitol, as inviting as it sounds, um, will set off civil unrest in this country. It's it's the, the match that Donald Trump has been looking for to light the fire. So, so they can't do that. They've got to rely on the courts. And this entire hearing was designed to show the courts that they've done everything they can to get the White House to cooperate and the White House won't cooperate. So let me spend a, a couple more minutes on this. They put it in closed-door session. Which no was, cameras. No cameras, which is what Hope Hicks wanted. Chairman Nadler started the hearing by talking about how we're bending over backwards to accommodate everything you want in front of, you know, um, you know probably $10,000 an hour worth of lawyers. And then they proceeded to allow the six lawyers there to object something like 168 times, you know, over uh, the short period that she testified. They also called the White House's bluff on executive privilege. The White House could have exerted executive privilege, uh, and I think that would have been blown out of the water because they've already waived executive privilege on this testimony through the special counsel's office. So in bringing her in in a closed session and having them assert the privilege they did, they called their bluff because what they did is they made up a privilege. There's not a lawyer in America who understood what total immunity meant Uh, except for like some defense attorney's dream that they could get from a genie in a bottle. It doesn't exist. There's no court in the land that will uphold it. The House of Representatives now can go to court. This has almost nothing to do with Hope Hicks. It has to do with Don McGahn. They can now go to court and say, there is no such thing as this immunity. We have exhausted everything. We have bent over backwards for the White House. We've brought one of their people in they, we allowed them not to answer the questions. There were no cameras. Look, this isn't about politics. This is about getting to the truth. But we need this testimony. They have set this up, I believe, from a legal perspective uh, as well as they can short of opening an impeachment uh, inquiry. Uh, so as I said before the hearing, those thirsting to watch the soap opera of Hope Hicks testify will be disappointed. Uh, those who want the president impeached today will be disappointed, but I think those very smart lawyers in the Judiciary Committee and in in the House for the Democrats knew that this was a very important step to take to getting these people in before Congress on camera, telling this, bringing the Mueller report to life, and holding the president accountable.
1: It seems like both sides are continuing to try to draw this out, and that seems to at least for now be a part of Speaker Pelosi's strategy. But talk a little bit about where she is and and where maybe she's going.
0: Yeah, I think Speaker Pelosi is is a victim of the I-need-to-see-it-now-I-need-it-done-now syndrome. And I think her strategy is there's multiple levels to it, but one of them is that when a politician says – I want to impeach you or I think you're, you've committed high crimes and misdemeanors. It's one thing. And I I demand that you come and testify before my committee. That's one thing. I think she understands instinctually that, that the public sees that it's just a political battle. What I think she knows is that when a third party, the judiciary gets involved, the public sees it a different way. They see it as much more legitimate. So I think what she's been telling her caucus is we need to be patient. We need to go through this process with DOJ. We need to – eventually when we get to court, we need to show we've exhausted. We've negotiated in good faith. We've exhausted um, uh, everything we could. And now the courts have to remedy this, this situation. The second piece of it is she is laser-focused on the 40 new Democrats that got elected and making sure – that they don't have to walk the plank to make sure that some person who's in a safe seat feels good about imp- impeaching Donald Trump. So for every AOC and Ayanna Presley and all these people calling for impeachment, she's got you know Abigail Spanberger in Richmond who campaigned on I don't want to run on Russia stuff. I want to run on getting you good health care and good jobs and bringing the public along is essential to making sure that these people are protected because what sense does it make? to roll the dice and say, we're going to impeach him. He's going to be acquitted. He gets reelected and we lose the House. And we are right back to 2017 with the president with no oversight. And in some small ways, and it's just not dramatic the way people want to see it, but in some small ways, I think I can see the strategy working. I'll give you the latest example. Katie Porter, one of the most impressive new congresswomen from California 45, last week put a video up for her constituent saying, I think we need to move forward on impeachment and here's why. She's one of the people that needed to be protected. She couldn't have done that three or four months ago in her district and not have been met with a lot of opposition. But the, the Mueller report is beginning to sink in. The public, if you look at the public polls, they are moving however imperceptibly. And the public polls don't look at the overall numbers. They don't matter. Very progressive Democrats want the president impeached. Conservative Democrats and independents are what's going to decide this election. They are beginning to move towards impeachment. That's the only number that matters. It's the only number that Pelosi should be looking at. It is beginning to move. And when you see Katie Porter doing what what she did last week, I think it's a, a testament to the go slow strategy is working.
1: The real test will be when Joe Lockhart starts to move the way of Katie Porter and decides that impeachment is the right route.
0: Let me do a promo for Unredacted. I'm going this week to debate Philippe a second time. For round I mean, two. We round two. It's the away game. Listen, I'm not unmoved by the Mueller report. To preview what I'll say to Philippe is you've said the president should be impeached two months before the Mueller report. So don't look at me and say the Mueller report is relevant here. You want him impeached because you want him impeached. It's, it's very convenient to now say you have the evidence he should be impeached. I'm not immune to the evidence. What, what it comes down to me is when we had Ron Klain in here talking to us, he talked about asymmetrical warfare. And Democrats consistently lose because they have this sense of duty that they have to play to. And I think congressmen and women are, are sincere when they say we have a duty to do this. I think that's misplaced. I think our, the duty now for Democrats is to play by the same rules the Republicans are and do what's best for Democrats because that's what's ultimately best for the country. And I think that going slow, building public support, when and if there's a place where the independents in this country think the president, when they've been brought along through the judicial branch, through whatever hearings Congress can put together, then they, they can impeach. But we have to make sure – That Trump's defeated in 2020. We have to make sure we hold the House. Winning the Senate would be great, but we have to make sure we do that. And that has to drive. We can do something that makes us feel really good right now, particularly someone who went through Clinton's impeachment. Having that label put on Donald Trump would make me feel really good because he's a bad guy and he should be labeled a bad guy. But we've got to do this in a way where we actually do take where the country's going into account. And not sort of look at this as oh look what we did we 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 called them a name
3: Joe neither of us are foreign policy experts but we have both been in the West Wing of the White House when the President of the United States ordered American forces into action and then in our respective White Houses you and I had to go out and communicate the reasons for those military actions now it's critically important that the President and we as communicators had credibility in my White House we had some at the start and we squandered it last week. We saw the first test of this in the Trump White House with Iran. What do you make of it, Joe?
0: Let me underscore not being either uh, an expert on US-Iranian conflict, um, Middle East policy, but I I know enough to be dangerous from my time in in government. And the second uh, qualifier is, I don't know, I haven't seen the intel on this, so I don't know uh, what the military options were and what, what options were available to the president. And that's important because that makes me like everyone else, dependent on the president to tell us the truth about what the situation is, uh, what the options are, and what he's done, what he's going to do, and what the rationale for that is. And it's extraordinarily troubling that right out of the box, the president has chosen to lie about it. How do I know he lied about this? Well, first off, there are inconsistencies. First, he said... Uh, 10 minutes before the launch of the attack in a tweet, uh, he found out that 150 people would be killed and he called it off. A few hours later, that was a half an hour. I'm not quibbling with 10 minutes versus a half an hour. I'm quibbling with the fact that he found out at the end of the process that there would be casualties. Now, first off, what kind of guy, green lights on operation and then stops at the last minute on the okay and asks the question at the end. Talk to anyone who's been in the national security apparatus for any administration that at the beginning of the process, each each and every option that was presented to the president had some information on collateral damage. And the idea that somehow the president feels like it's okay to go out and make up a story about what happened when it's not how it happened. Uh, just so he doesn't look indecisive or weak is is not okay. It's dangerous. It's dangerous because we, we know from our recent history that small lies beget larger lies that beget the big lie. While President Trump was quick to blame President Obama, that's one of the more nonsensical parts of this. This is a situation that's Donald Trump's making and Donald Trump's alone. We're in this situation because Trump put us there. He can blame Obama all he wants. He can misrepresent the deal all he wants. But just like with health care, he decided to try to undo something without any idea of what the next step was. The world was a safer place uh, because of the Iranian deal. It is now not only not a safer place as far as restarting the nuclear program and enriching uranium, but it's become a potential powder keg in the Middle East that has ramifications well beyond Iran. And the president has no clue what his strategy is because he doesn't understand the issues. You don't lead the free world by being the best tweeter.
3: Well, Joe, it seems like John Bolton has wanted to go to war with Iran for the last decade and a half at least, and he may get his war.
0: This idea that somehow uh, the White House is being used to scratch the ideological itch of anyone who might still be willing to work there is a little scary. You have the people that either uh, couldn't work someplace else or know that if they leave, they can't get a job. Working for a president who doesn't have a grasp of the complex, interdependent uh, national security and international security uh, issues that face him. You look at the southern border and the president does his best to scare the hell out of us in order to win political points. This is an issue that the American public should be scared to death of. You've got an unsteady hand with an unsteady team, uh, with an incomplete team. There's no secretary of defense to push back. And you've got a president who's not tethered to the truth and will tell any lie that in that moment makes life easier or better for him. It's no wonder we're being provoked right now.
1: All right, Adam, Joe, thanks for joining us this week on What's On Your Mind. Joe, we'll be right back here next week.
0: Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please
3: rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.